Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 2, Coming Back to Scotland. I left Zimbabwe in the height of summer and arrived back in Scotland in the middle of winter. I got back to Edinburgh on one of those bright, clear, beautiful winter mornings that make you glad to be alive. Although I was desperately sad to leave Zimbabwe and my family, I was excited to start the next phase of my paediatric training in Glasgow. At that time I was living in Edinburgh and commuting to Glasgow. My first placement in Glasgow was on the paediatric cardiology ward, looking after children with heart problems. Although the consultants for whom I was working were fantastic, I didn't find the cardiology aspect of the work that inspiring. It seemed to me rather like glorified plumbing, although of course in reality it was far more than that. I was a junior doctor, responsible for the day-to-day care of a ward full of children with heart disease, which by and large had been present from birth. Some of the children were very young and were awaiting surgical procedures to correct their heart problems. Others were older and had been through surgery in the past and were coming in with complications of their continuing heart disease. Sadly, for some of these children it meant prolonged periods of time in hospital. This did, however, provide a really important opportunity to get to know the children and their families and this was an incredibly important part of my learning at that time. I remember one particular baby. Let's call her Katie, although that wasn't her name. By the time I arrived she was three months old, but she'd been on the ward since the age of six weeks. Katie had a large hole in the muscular wall between the two big chambers of her heart, known as a ventricular septal defect. This was very large, and it meant that there was far too much blood flowing into her lungs. She'd had a palliative operation to try and help with this, but despite this operation she remained breathless and this had a major impact on her ability to feed and on her growth. She became breathless and tired when feeding, and because of her heart problem she needed additional energy to grow. Although her feeds were supplemented, she wasn't gaining weight as quickly as we were hoping. We knew that Katie needed to grow, because the heart surgeons didn't want to operate on her to correct the VSD until she was bigger, and the surgical procedure would be safer. She had a very difficult time in hospital, with days where things seemed to be going well, and then days when she seemed to take four or five steps backwards. It was a horrible roller coaster ride for her parents, who could never be sure what the next morning would bring. They received such a lot of support from the staff on the ward, and it was a real privilege to be part of that. I realised that even when you couldn't make things right, you could make things better. Simply being a shoulder to cry on or a sounding board for parental concerns could make a real difference. Of course, medically there were many challenges, but with careful adjustment of her medication and close attention to the complications that arose on a regular basis, she gradually grew. There came a point, though, where it was clear that without surgical correction of her problem, whatever we did, she wouldn't grow well enough, and we had long discussions with the family about how we should approach this. One of the great things about the team there was the fact that they took families along with them. There was never a sense that people were told what to do, 
nor were families left unsupported to make decisions that they simply couldn't make. Eventually, after lengthy discussions, the heart surgeons decided that the time was right to proceed to operation. It was incredibly tough for the family. Their baby had grown into an infant. She didn't fully understand what was happening to her, but she knew that there were things about being in hospital that she didn't like. She hated the repeated blood tests that she needed to have. She was upset when she pulled out the nasogastric tube. A feeding tube passed through her nose into her tummy, and it had to be repassed. However, she loved it when people played with her, and each day I could see her developing and growing in understanding. This was incredible for me. To see child development happening in front of you, and to witness the incredible speed of change, even for a child stuck in a hospital, was amazing, and to be part of that felt very special. The morning came for Katie's surgery. My responsibilities remained on the ward, but I knew her parents were pacing around downstairs, waiting for news about how she had done. Inevitably, a complex heart operation like this took many hours, and all of us waited for news. At the end of the day, the surgeon came up and told us that the operation had gone well, and that Katie was recovering in intensive care. She remained there for a few days and then returned to the ward. The change in her was remarkable. She was no longer breathless, and she just looked better. The relief in her parents' eyes was remarkable. Not surprisingly, there were ups and downs before she eventually went home, but home she went, and well. One of the sad things from my point of view is that as a junior doctor on the wards, I rarely got to see what happened after admission, although a few months later Katie's parents did bring her back to the ward, and it was brilliant to catch up with them, and to catch up with her. I guess at that time it reinforced in me that I wanted to be involved in looking after children over a longer period of time, not simply to be dealing with acute problems and never seeing the long-term outcomes. Katie had a large VSD, or ventricular septal defect. It's worth discussing here what a VSD actually is. A VSD happens when the wall between the two large muscular chambers of the heart, known as the ventricles, doesn't close properly while the baby is in the womb, leading to a hole or communication between the two sides of the heart. In the normal heart, the right ventricle pumps blood to the lungs under relatively low pressure. There it picks up oxygen before returning to the heart on the left side. The powerful left ventricle then pumps that oxygenated blood around the body. If the wall between the two sides doesn't form properly, then blood will pass from the left side to the right side of the heart, as it is easier for the heart to pump to the lungs than to the body. This leads to increased blood flow to the lungs, which, if left untreated, will lead to complications such as heart failure and increased pressure in the vessels of the lungs, known as pulmonary hypertension. VSD is the commonest form of congenital heart disease. Congenital heart disease of one form or another affects about 1% of babies. In the vast majority of babies born with a VSD, the hole is small and closes spontaneously over time without any need for medical or surgical intervention. However, in babies with a very large defect in the ventricular wall, problems such as breathlessness, sweating, tiredness while feeding, poor weight gain, as was the case for Katie, can occur, and medical or surgical intervention will be required. 
Initially, babies may need medical treatment to treat heart failure. In addition to this, some babies with large holes, usually because the baby is too small for open heart surgery, will need a temporary procedure to reduce blood flow to the lungs. This is known as pulmonary artery banding. Pulmonary artery banding is an operation in which a narrow band is placed around the main artery to the lungs, which is known as the pulmonary artery. This makes it harder for the heart to pump against the narrow band, thus protecting the lungs by reducing blood flow to the lungs. This helps to reduce or avoid damage to the tiny blood vessels in the lungs, and thus the development of pulmonary hypertension. In the majority of babies who have needed a pulmonary artery band, there will be later open heart surgery to close the defect in the ventricular wall. At this time, the pulmonary artery band will be removed. The definitive operation to close the VSD requires an infant to be placed on a heart-lung machine, known as bypass, as the heart needs to be temporarily stopped so that the defect can be closed. The operation, though, is generally highly successful. Following surgery, the child will need long-term follow-up, and parents and child are advised about precautions that may need to be taken in the long term. For example, good dental hygiene, regular checkups, and no tattoos or piercings before or after the surgery. However, most children who have had this kind of surgery go on to lead normal, healthy lives. After my time in cardiology, I moved to a general paediatric ward, seeing children with a wide range of different problems. On that ward were the children with neurological disease, and the child neurologist for the hospital, at that time there was only one, would visit regularly. Like almost all paediatricians, I was initially terrified about child neurology. The brain seemed so complicated, and the children with neurological disease often seemed so impaired. However, quite quickly I was able to see past that and to realise that these were simply children. They might have had quite special needs and they might have had a different pattern of development from that expected, but they felt happiness and sadness and fear and surprise, pleasure and pain in exactly the same way as any other child. All that was needed was for the people around them to understand that. Suddenly the fear about neurology and neurodisability began to evaporate. I realised that these children fell into a group who were often forgotten and that there was a natural tendency for society and indeed some of the staff to consider them less important because of their neurodisability. Although at that stage I didn't realise that I would spend my life working in child neurology, there is no doubt that that early exposure planted a seed which gradually grew over the next two or three years. As a junior doctor, one of the important skills to learn is how to judge the urgency of a situation. Although my experience in Zimbabwe meant that I was used to dealing with the emergency situations, I still found it difficult to judge whether a patient-centred task needed to be done now, could be left for a couple of hours, or could be left till the following day. I remember a little boy, Jamie, not his real name, who'd been in hospital for several weeks. Jamie had been very unwell with repeated chest infections and had had two very prolonged courses of antibiotics. Towards the end of the second course of antibiotics, he started to develop quite severe diarrhoea and a stool sample was sent for culture. This returned showing growth of an organism known as Clostridium difficile, 
or C. diff. Although this is not quite a common organism, and is actually reportable if it occurs in hospital, it was far less frequently seen in those days. It was well known that this organism could be associated with a very serious bowel infection, causing a condition known as pseudomembranous colitis. Jamie's diarrhoea had worsened, and he started to have some blood and mucus in his stools. He was seen on the ward round by the consultant, who advised that he should be started on a particular antibiotic known as vancomycin. Vancomycin was not readily available, and my job was to chase up the pharmacy in order to get hold of it for this child. By the time the ward round finished, it was early evening. I contacted the pharmacy, who told me that vancomycin was not available and that there was no emergency pharmacist who could get hold of it that evening. This wasn't that unusual at the time. I was told that it would be available first thing in the morning. I made the decision that, since Jamie had been unwell for several days, and since he appeared stable and did not have a temperature, we could afford to wait until the following morning to start the antibiotic. He'd already been started on intravenous fluids, and the previous antibiotics had been stopped. This was important because C. diff often occurs because of antibiotics killing normal gut bacteria. On the ward round the following morning, the consultant asked me about the vancomycin. I explained that it had not been available the previous evening, and that Jamie had had his first dose that morning. My consultant went ballistic. He tore a strip off me for not having insisted on obtaining the vancomycin the previous evening, and explained to me the potential seriousness of my omission. I realised that my judgement had been poor and that I had put the child at risk by not insisting that pharmacy obtain the antibiotic as a matter of urgency. It was an extremely important lesson for me, and I realised that sometimes urgent action is required, even when a patient doesn't seem that unwell, to avoid more serious consequences later. Why was my consultant so unhappy? The organism that had been found in Jamie's stools was relatively rare in those days. Although in many cases children with C. diff may present only with relatively mild diarrhoea without any serious systemic illness, it was also known that the germ could cause much more severe diarrhoea and, importantly, a condition known as pseudomembranous colitis. This would occur when toxins from the germ attacked the lining of the large bowel, leading to damage to the bowel wall formation of a greyish membrane on the surface and occasionally perforation or gangrene of the bowel. My consultant had been concerned by looking at Jamie that he was suffering from the much more severe infection. He had discussed with me the previous day his concern about a possible diagnosis of pseudomembranous colitis, but I had failed to understand that delaying antibiotic treatment for 12 hours could potentially have had extremely serious consequences. Nowadays, C. diff is increasingly frequently seen, both in the community and, importantly, in hospitals, where it can be spread readily from one person to another. It is a particularly serious illness in the elderly. As a consequence of this, in the UK, hospital-acquired cases of C. diff must be reported centrally, and hospitals can be held to account if their procedures are not good enough to prevent spread within the patient population. Pseudomembranous colitis itself remains rare, but it is extremely important and means that no infection with C. diff can be treated lightly.
After my general paediatric exposure, I moved to another hospital in Glasgow for my first attachment in neonatology. This is the care of the newborn infant. In reality, other than performing baby checks on otherwise healthy infants, the vast majority of the work centres around looking after babies who have been born prematurely. There have been dramatic changes in technology since I first started doing neonates, but the underlying principles have not really changed. The issues for babies and their families certainly haven't. One of the challenges for families is that parents and their babies are separated, and parents may only be able to have fleeting contact, sometimes only being able to look at their baby and not to touch because of risks of infection. Things change so rapidly for preterm infants that parents can never relax and are always on tenterhooks, wondering whether something else will go wrong. I was privileged as a very junior doctor to be supported by two extremely experienced and wonderfully approachable middle-grade doctors or registrars. Even more importantly, the nurses on the neonatal intensive care unit were superb and incredibly supportive. However, at night I was the only doctor there. Shortly after I started, a pair of twins were delivered at 28 weeks gestation. In other words, they were born 12 weeks early. They each weighed just around a kilo in weight. Nowadays, that would be considered a good weight for a preterm infant, but back then this was very challenging. One of the earliest and most serious complications of prematurity was, and still is, the fact that the lungs of preterm infants have not fully formed, and in particular they lack an important chemical known as surfactant. Surfactant is an extremely important molecule that helps to reduce the surface tension in the very small air pockets or alveoli of the lungs. Lack of surfactant means that the alveoli can readily collapse, leading to problems with breathing. This is an extremely common consequence of unexpected preterm delivery at 28 weeks gestation. For the last 30 or so years, surfactant has been routinely used to treat preterm infants and it has been shown to significantly improve outcomes. Unfortunately, although surfactant was known of when I started in neonates, it was not available as a therapeutic intervention. Both twins developed severe respiratory distress, and both needed to be ventilated. Twin 1, who was a girl, seemed to respond very well to ventilation, and although she had some difficult periods, in general we were able to keep her stable on the ventilator, until her lungs improved and she was able to come off the ventilator after about 10 days. Twin 2, who was a boy, unfortunately had a much more difficult time. There was one night where his oxygen levels plummeted, and despite all the adjustments to his ventilator that I could think of, it proved impossible to bring his oxygen levels up to an acceptable point. I was in frequent contact with my senior registrar, who was the middle grade doctor on call that night, but he didn't have any other ideas either. We called in the baby's parents and explained that their son was seriously ill. They spent the night at the incubator with me. Inexplicably, at about six o'clock in the morning, suddenly his oxygen levels improved, and by the time the consultant came round on the ward round, it was as if there had been no problem at all. His parents, the nurses and I all knew differently. We had other difficult nights, but none as bad as that. Fortunately, both twins steadily improved, and after nearly three months in hospital, they were able to go home. The little girl was discharged in air without the need for any additional oxygen. She was bright, 
alert and appeared to be making good developmental progress. The wee boy was still on some oxygen and was likely to remain on this for quite some time. He too appeared to be bright and alert, but we knew from brain scans that there were changes in his brain, which were almost certainly the consequence of his severe respiratory disease and its treatment. His parents were fully aware of this. Nevertheless, not surprisingly, both parents were so happy. They knew that things would probably not be plain sailing going forward, but they had both their babies and they had each other, and they were determined that both children would have the very best they could give. I was privileged to meet with them about a year later when they came back to an outpatient clinic at which I was the middle grade doctor. Both infants were making tremendous progress. The little boy did show some signs of neurodisability, but he was bright, happy and loved. The relationship between him and his sister was amazing, and the family had pulled together even more in the time since I'd last seen them. Of course, the outcomes weren't always as good as this, but I came away from my first exposure to neonatology, heartened by what could be achieved in what often seemed such desperate situations. After I finished my time in neonatology, I returned to general paediatrics and began to realise that my career would probably lie in child neurology. But that's something for next time. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I will be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.